From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Former U.S. Secret Service agent Gary Byrne is standing by. He's got a brand new book out titled Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. We are live on YouTube tonight. You can go to my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Please be sure to hit the red sub button while you're there. Faz Kazi is behind the big audio board tonight. Ryan is producing the live stream from his underground lair. Uh, my story producer, Albert Venzel, is en route to Gobekli Tepe on special assignment. Just kidding. Uh, hey, congratulations to Stuart Fines of Galway, Ireland. Stuart is one of our Patreon supporters, and he's this month's winner of some Strange Planet merch. And I don't know if I'm holding that up. I hope you can see that. I've dropped a, a CD of my Strange Planet radio feature in the uh, in the post for Stuart, and that should be arriving in a couple of weeks. If you'd like to become an official supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet and choose the donor tier that's right for you. This past Friday, we had our first exclusive hangout on air for our um, our Star Chamber tier, and it was great meeting uh, Kirk. Uh, down in Scottsdale, Arizona, one of our uh, our newest Tier 1 donors. It was on this date, uh, January 27th, 1967, the tragedy struck. All three astronauts aboard the Apollo 1 capsule, Gus Grissom, Roger Chafee, and Ed White, uh, died in a horrific fire during a pre-launch test. That was 52 years ago this very day. On the day that he was shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth, Abraham Lincoln approved the formation of the United States Secret Service, a government agency tasked with protecting the integrity of the nation's currency. In 1901, after the assassination of President William McKinley, Congress extended their duties to involve the protection of the president. And as the name implies... The organization is extremely guarded when it comes to discussing details of their methods, but we're not completely in the dark, in part thanks to my guest, Gary Byrne, served in federal law enforcement for nearly 30 years in the U.S. Air Force Security Police, the Uniformed Division of the Secret Service, and most recently as a federal air marshal while serving as a Secret Service officer, Gary protected President Bill Clinton and the first family in the White House. His first book, Crisis of Character, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. His latest is Secrets of the Secret Service, the History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Gary Byrne, welcome aboard. Good to have you back on the program. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me back. Let me begin with a very simple question. How does one become a member of the U.S. Secret Service? Because, for example, I just completed a very simple criminal background check just to get a security pass that will uh, let me into a radio station here in Toronto where I host uh, Coast to Coast several times a month. I can't imagine 
the criminal background check you'd have to undergo. I mean, do they inter- go back in time and interview your kindergarten teacher? I mean, walk us yeah, through they, that a little bit if you they could. They do, actually. Yeah, they, um, actually, the Secret Service has some special rules that they get, believe it or not. Uh, or, or I should say, go figure. Um, let's say, for instance, if they were, uh, like when I applied to, to be in the Secret Service Uniform Division, if I had had a criminal record, they have the ability to open, um, uh, excuse me, a criminal record as a juvenile, they have the uh, authorization to go into any juvenile criminal record to, to see what, you know, somebody may have done. Um, the background check t- for me took two and a half years because I had been stationed overseas in the Air Force. Um, the average background check at that time was probably 18 months. It took two and a half years for me. They go into everything. They look into your finances. You have to pass a polygraph test. They ask you about uh, what they would consider any sexual deviant behavior. They ask you about your, if, you know, basically they want to know if you have a normal relationship with farm animals or, you know, it's, um, mm-hmm. they get pretty deep into it. Um, uh, but, it, you know, it took a long time, but um, you know, I finally got through it. So. And, and now I would imagine for anyone contemplating a career in the Secret Service, uh, if you've been active on social media, they're going to go back and check that. I mean, that could come. That's going to come back and haunt you, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is completely different from when I joined. Like, I mean, you know, it's just amazing when I when I started in 1991. It's just amazing how communications have changed between now and you. I mean, it w- I wouldn't be any more surprised to find out that you know we were walking to the moon. Almost. You know what I mean? Like, the, just the way you can communicate now. Um, and everything you've done, just like, you know, if in high school, you know, when they were doing my background check in, in the early 90s, if they had come across somebody I went to school with in high school and they said, well, you know, Gary was there one night when he stole a car. Well, now, you know, people do everything they do, they put it on social media, you know, and, and, you know, people are famous. We've, you know, we've, some of us have probably known ourselves where you say, you say things on social media that, you don't particularly mean or you wouldn't actually do, but then they're there forever. Exactly. Yeah, people, young people need to understand that, not just for a job in the Secret Service. Uh, eventually, it's probably exactly. going to come back and haunt you. Now, you were assigned to protect the Clinton uh, White House. Um, uh, yeah. I didn't, now, I didn't realize uh, that there are, there are thousands of Secret Service agents, I guess, at any one time, not just the ones that are running alongside the presidential limo. Um, right. we, now, were you considered to be part of the presidential protection division? Well, not not initially. I was in the uniform division. Now they now they are. The uniform division is actually considered part of presidential protection. But when I was there, we were just the uniform division. Um, you know, the uniform division of the Secret Service does the metal detectors. They do all the fixed posts at the White House. They do the, the perimeter post outside. They do the emergency response teams. They have a crime scene uh, investigation team in, in Washington. They also uh, do the counter sniper, the, the bomb sniffing dogs. Uh, and we were just considered the uniform division. Now, over the years since I, I uh, left, they have pulled the uniform division in a little bit more closer to presidential protection just for communication reasons, for management reasons. Um, but uh, And I talk about it in the book, in my second book, Secrets of the Secret Service. Some of the things they've done are good, and some of the things they do in their management system is, you know, it's a very old management system, and it's kind of hard for them to go into. Yeah, the, uh, 
the uniform division is now considered part of presidential protection. And and while you were protecting the Clinton White House, tell me about a typical day if there was such a thing. Yeah, so for me, let's say if it was a day shift, I would probably leave my house at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd get to the White House. It'd take about an hour. I'd, I'd usually work out first. Um, and most of us, uh, a lot of us did do that. We, we One day you lift weights, the next day you do we are running. And, and then I'd, I'd go to roll call about uh, 6.30. And, um, and when my post, I had, when my post was outside the Oval Office, so I would head over there. I had a partner. We, we rotated an hour on or an hour off, standing outside the Oval Office. Um, sometimes he would take it first, or I would take it after I worked out. And then uh, you basically, the first thing you did when you went in there is you walked through the whole suite of the offices that the president uses, which is the Oval Office, his secretary's office, the cabinet room, um, his study, uh, the dining room, his little bathroom. And you walk through there and you make sure that nothing is out of place. There's nothing, there's no, nothing's leaking. There's no fires. You know, everything is normal. Um, and then you basically just wait for the, uh, you have a copy of the president's schedule and you just wait for him to come over and, you know, you do your job. You're, you're basically on standby, uh, if there's an attack and, and, um, and you make sure that everybody in the hallway is supposed to be there, that you recognize everybody and you help the agents identify everybody too because the agents, they come and go as the president moves, but the uniform division guys are always there 24-7 at those posts. So um, you work with, you know, you, you work uh, uh, together. Um, when we have our issues, they, you know, the Secret Service agents and the uniform division guys always had issues from time to time, but we always worked together and uh, got the job done. So, um, But that would be a typical day. Like, you'd get there, um, you know, you, you get a lunch break, uh, and then... Um, depending on what the president did or how busy the day was, you just kind of went along with it. Some days it was smooth and some days it was crazy hectic, you know. Lately I've been uh, watching an old series on Netflix, Designated Survivor. Uh, I mean, how accurate a a, a portrayal uh, of the Secret Service is that? I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a character there, Mike, uh, African-American gentleman, uh, who is uh, sort of of portrayed as the main – Secret Service agent uh, protecting the president and and his family. How accurate is that? Well, they're taking a lot of uh, of, of license with it a little bit. You know, the the Secret Service like there's there's at any one time there's at least six agents around them. Now, when he's in the Oval, the agents are posted outside of the colonnade, outside of the hallway where my post was. You know, they're, so they're kind of surrounding him. You know, outside the room. You, you know, normally day to day, we don't, they don't go in the sides of the room with them. From time to time, they do. I mean, there was, there's always exceptions. I mean, I've actually myself, you know, under some of these exceptions, have actually opened the door and walked in and stood in the, in the president, with the president and the agent because of something that was going on. Um, but, but the way they portray it in movies, it's a little bit more serious. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the way they, they portray the Secret Service in the TV and movies, they portray them as more serious than what we are. And, and I don't mean we don't take the job serious, but it's like anywhere. If, if you had that much tension on you all the time, um, like they portray in TV and movies, you would melt, you know, you would, you would be exhausted at the end of the, of the day. You wouldn't last until the next day. Um, right. So it's a little, it's a little bit more laid back than they portray it, but it's a serious job and you learn how to, you know, deal with that stress, um, in, in, in certain ways. And, um, 
Um, but uh, the way they portray, you know, the, it's always so dr- dramatic, and it's not always dramatic. It's it's usually, you know, you hope for a real boring day, and um, the days that are like that, that's great, and some days it's not. You know. Well, in terms of training to be a Secret Service agent, would you be required, let's say, to, to watch the Zapruder film, for example? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we do. Um, it is one of the, the films you watch. And it's really funny. I'm glad you brought this up. I didn't really realize this till you know, till last year, two years ago when I was, or a year ago when I was writing the second book, Secrets of the Secret Service. You know, they teach you about the Kennedy assassination and the Zabruder film in a certain way. You know, they're, they do it in a way where they want to make sure that, like, they don't have any fingerprints on it. The Secret Service tries to teach it like they don't really have any responsibility for what happened. And that's really not what the reality is. Um, but they do talk about this Buddha film. Um, and they, and there's another, there's another piece of film that they show and there's some still pictures. And then, um, they, they actually, they do read some, they had a small bit. I remember them reading to us, like some of the reports from guys, like, um, you know, personal notes and stuff that they made, um, afterwards and, and things that happened to some of the guys. But, um, they don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, and, and, you know, in hindsight, like I said, when I was writing the book, it made me a little suspicious, you know. Um, and I tried to, when I wrote Secrets of the Secret Service, my co-writer and I, Grant Schmidt, we, we tried to leave the conspiracy theory, you know, theory stuff out. We just wanted to, you know, work on the facts that we knew. This is what they did. This is what happened. This is what somebody should have did. You know, it was neglected. But um, they do teach it, and they, and they, they actually... They, they teach the uh, Reagan assassination pretty pretty deep, deeply too. But when I joined, some of the guys that were around when when, when um, President Reagan, um, John Hinckley tried to assassinate him, they were still on the job. So we got to meet these guys. So that was fascinating too. Uh, yes, and we'll get into uh, some of the specific sure. assassination attempts uh, a little bit later. Gary Byrne with us for the full two hours. And uh, we are discussing his new book, Secrets of the Secret Service, The History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. Now, in crisis of character, you, I mean, to be brutal, you, I mean, you lambasted the Clintons. When a, when a yeah. former secret, when a former Secret Service agent tells tales out of school, so to speak, are there repercussions? So, for example, is there like a fraternity, a fraternity of former Secret Service agents, and do you risk there being is. ostracized when you write a tell-all? Absolutely, um, I, 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 you do absolutely, and just about everything you said came true. Yeah, you know, the, the Retired Agents Association came out, and you know, first they tried to say that I was uh, that I didn't have access to what I saw, and then when that didn't stand up, because the truth is. You can go on YouTube and actually, um, there's a YouTube video of me actually working my post during the Clinton administration. George Stephanopoulos is in the video. President Clinton uh, comes into the video. Um, it, it's it's a, a documentary that was being it just happened to be filmed that the, the Clinton administration allowed to be filmed while they were there. So you know it proves that I was there and, and everything and, and you know everything the history of what happened, me being subpoenaed and forced to testify you know, uh, proves that everything I said it, uh, was true. Um, but, yeah, they came out and tried to slander me, and, 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 um, and, uh, and, I, and you know, I started a court proceeding on them. And so when the second book came out, they were pretty much silent. <laughs> uh, but the truth mm-hmm. is that 
at least 40 other, you know, I, I read and researched 40 other books, roughly, uh, written by other Secret Service employees, usually agents. And um, the first, I'm the first uniform division officer that ever wrote a book like this, or these two books like this. So they didn't really know how to handle it. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you know, my feelings aren't hurt. I get, you know, they, they're trying to protect the image of the Secret Service. And that's one of the re- that's one of the things I talk about in Secrets of the Secret Service. It, it, in some ways, they're more worried about protecting the reputation of the Secret Service than they seem to be in protecting the protectee. So, um, but yeah, you're right. They did come out, and, and, and uh, they're, they're not happy about it. But by the same token, there's not much they can do about it. So, prior to um, you coming out. And, and talking about this and other Secret Service agents that have written, not tell-alls, but they've sort of revealed certain things about the Secret Service sure. And, sure. and so forth. Prior to that, was there and is there still this unwritten rule that Secret Service agents take their secrets to the grave? Yeah, there is to a certain extent. Here's, here's the, the other thing I've kind of discovered. Um, and, and I kind of use this as, as, as a def- part of my defense when I wrote the first book. All those... You know, there's been a lot of books written by other people uh, that were never in the Secret Service. And I will tell you that um, their information is right on. It's right on target. So somebody in the Secret Service was talking, and it wasn't somebody from the Uniform Division, because you can tell by the way that the story uh, folds out when you're reading it or you're hearing somebody talk about it, you know, what the perspective was. You can tell it was from an agent's perspective. So, you know... Through the history of the Secret Service, agents have always met with people in secret. You know, somebody's writing a book. Well, I can't tell you officially, but, you know, over a free steak and some drinks, I'll, you know, I'll mm-hmm. tell you unofficially. And so what I've done was, instead of doing that, I put my face on the book, my name on the book, and, and I came out and, and told what the truth is. And, um, you know, it, that was hard to handle for some people. Um, but it is what it is. You know, if you're going to do the right thing, do the right thing. I, I neglected to ask you when I mentioned the Zapruder film, and you said that you had studied right. it, and it is part of the training. I know yeah. you don't delve into sort of the conspiracy aspect in 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 your new book, uh, Secrets of the Secret Service. But what do you think after looking at that umpteen times? Was the fatal headshot from behind, or was the shooter in front or to the side of the president? Yeah. So um, I, I kind of come down in a, in a, on a couple sides of that. To be honest with you. And I, I will tell you that, um, you know, and I say this kind of, I mean, I, I have fired every firearm just about that there is, small arm that you could, you know, that is used in law enforcement. And I've rifles, shotguns, handguns, you name it. And I've shot about everything you can think of. Um, I will tell you when I watch that film, that, that, that bullet that impacts him that opens up his skull, you know, if I had to guess, I would tell you it looks like it's going faster. It does look like it's a different rifle round. Uh, I believe it looked like it impacts them uh, from the front, but I don't have anything to back that up. Um, there are a couple conspiracy theories that I kind of touch on a little bit, um, and, and, and there's one that particularly I purposely left out of the book. I'll talk about it, you know, on the radio shows and stuff, but I kind of left it out of the book because I don't want to make it too confusing. But the bottom line is, is what I discovered was is that the President Kennedy was basically killed because the Secret Service was incredibly incompetent that day. There was a lot of procedures they weren't using. 
the ones they were using, they weren't doing correctly, and they basically left the window open that a gun could stick a rifle out and and take a shot. And the night before, some of those guys were out partying, and we found evidence in in in, in documentation and in other people's books um, that they were out to three to five o'clock in the morning. And in after learning that and, and studying some more stuff, and then you watch the Bruder film, and you see most everybody kind of shocked or in a stupor, it, it fits right in, with the exception of the, the uh, gentleman that you see that runs from the follow-up car to uh, the back of President Kennedy's car, and right. uh, Clint Hill. And there's one other person you don't see on the film that I found through my... Um, um, Gary, I have to interject here. Excuse me. Oh, We're going to take a break. That's all right. We'll take a quick break, come back, and we'll pick up on that. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, revealing the secrets of the Secret Service right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome back. Gary Byrne is with us, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service. And he was, uh, well, he was in the Secret Service during the uh, Clinton White House years, standing right outside the Oval Office. Uh, before we get back to the JFK story, do you remember the first time you set foot in the Oval Office? What that felt yes, like? Yes, I, I do. I'd only been there about six months. It was so early 1991. And um, I had signed up to trained to work outside the Oval Office, and so I went over there one day for an hour to stand with the guy that was there, and the president at the time was President George Herbert Walker Bush, and um, so he was not in the Oval Office, so we went in, and he walked me through the whole suite, and uh, it, it was, I hate to sound corny, but it was kind of magic, I mean, it was just unbelievable, you know, I'm, I'm a kid from Ridley Park, Pennsylvania, you know, right outside of Philadelphia, and uh I mean, how the heck did I get there? It was, uh, it, it was, and, you know, that feeling kind of never went away, to be honest with you. Not completely, I promise you. Uh, it was kind of magic. I uh, greatly appreciated the opportunity. All right. We were talking about uh, how, based on your research, the JFK security uh, secret service detail had dropped the ball. They were yeah. out partying the night before, well into the wee hours. And uh, you mentioned, with the exception of, of one uh, Secret Service agent, and you wanted to talk about uh, him and one other. Yeah, uh, the first guy you see in this brutal film, uh, Clint Hill, he runs from the follow-up car to President Kennedy's car. He was actually Mrs. Kennedy's like, lead agent. What you don't see in, in, the, in the film is two cars back is Vice President Johnson's car. And his lead agent, um, his name slipped my mind, but it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, his lead agent, um, as soon as he hears the first shot, this guy leaps up in the seat of the car, turns around. You know, it's an open car, but it has a, like a, a bar across between the two se seat sections. He leaps over the bar and pushes the vice president down on the floor and his wife and lays on top of him. I mean, those are the two guys that um, that did the right thing. And, and when you watch that three to five seconds go by on the tape, they're all kind of stunned. They're looking around. Um they're not really sure where the shots came from. The guy driving the car slows the car down at one point almost to a stop again. And he actually, you see on the film, he hits the brakes twice. And he's not sure what to do because he's not the normal driver. He wasn't trained properly. 
the uh, the agent in the, the it, sitting next to him doesn't give him any commands for like three to four seconds. So uh, you know, it wasn't just incompetence and and and, and, and you know imparting. It was bad training at the time. It was ego. You know, with the Secret Service even today, we you know, and I'm guilty of this myself. You know, um, you get in there and, and you start kind of believing your own press and and um, and you know, the truth is you have to turn in, you have to practice, and you have to you really have to play the what if game. What if this happens? I do this. What if that happens? And we do that. Do I need to do this? And these guys just, you know, they they. Um, they were making mistakes. The, the advance was was poorly done, and uh, and they got caught that day. And, and you know, again, set aside the conspiracy theories. They left the window open big enough for somebody to stick a rifle out of. They set up a, a motorcade route that brought them right into an area of perfect ambush, and uh, and the driver slowed down for them. So, and 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 it's not you know, it's just incompetence and bad training is what it, it boils down to. Uh, true or false, Secret Service agents take an oath to take a bullet for the president. Is that true or false? No, it's not actually an oath. So this came up when I when I uh, wrote the first book. Um, you know, everybody was, well, you took an oath. The oath that you take is to the Constitution of the United States and to the Office of the Presidency. Now, I will tell you that in your training, many times... There's two things, and this kind of goes back to one of the questions you we were talking about earlier, was the two things they keep kind of pounding into you is we're hiring you to stand up and take a bullet, whether you're in the uniform division or an agent. You know, your job isn't to turn around. You know, if the president's attacked, your job may be to turn around and pull your gun out and fight, but more than likely it's for the agents right around the president. Is to grab the president and move him. And move, move, move is the order of the day. Don't stop moving until you have to walk in, into a hardened facility. And um, and the other thing that pounds into you is, you know, you keep what happens to yourself. Um, that you, you you shouldn't talk about these things. And and I know it sounds a little ridiculous for me to be saying this now. And but I will tell you this: I absolutely believe it a hundred percent. I still believe it to a certain extent, which I know sounds a little crazy because I wrote these books. But my situation and, and you know i am rationalizing this a little bit I, I get it but my situation was a little bit different you know because of president clinton's behavior i got subpoenaed six times it, it you know um it kind of derailed my life i wanted the truth out and to tell get the truth out from my perspective and my co-workers perspective this is the only way to do it so but yeah they do pound that into you um and they the scenarios you know for instance you um in, one, in the uh, Reagan video, um, where the guy literally stands up on his toes and sticks his arms out, and they 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 are trained that way, um, exactly. After you, you know, discovered some of uh, Bill Clinton's character flaws, let's put it that way. <laughs> did you still feel the calling that that you would, if necessary, take a bullet for that president? Yeah, it didn't change a thing. And just to, just to reiterate that, like, um, people would ask me, people have asked me before on radio shows, and it's probably your, one of your next ten questions, but I'll, I'll jump ahead if you don't mind. Is like, what if I was still there and Mrs. Clinton had gotten elected? I would protect her with 100% of my abilities. Absolutely. That's the job. You have to disconnect. You have to have that ability to disconnect from the, the, your emotions 
your politics. And you have to realize, you know, half the country, regardless of who's president, half the country wants them in there and the other half doesn't. And half the world hates them. And you stood in front of, you know, everything you believe and your classmates and put your hand on a box, you know, raised your hand and swore an oath. And, you know, if you didn't understand, it was a risk to your life and that's your mistake. But you do your job, you do it to the best of your ability, and you hope for the best. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a firm believer in it and always will be. It reminds me of a, a it was an old joke about someone uh, going over to a friend's house. This is how old I am. It's a Nixon joke, but it was uh, yeah. they walk into this person's den and they see a, a portrait of President Nixon. And he says to his, this guy's a Democrat, and he says to his friend, I didn't know you were a fan of Richard Nixon. He says, I'm not. I'm a fan of the president. So it's yeah. the office. It's the, all about the office and respect no, for the office. Yeah, it's true. And I will tell you, it's overwhelming. It's, um, um, yeah, you know, nothing he ever, nothing he ever did that I saw. And I saw, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't talk about. Again, I wasn't trying to take down everybody that ever worked for him and, um, and, and bring up any more crap that, uh, that isn't out. But, but, um, the job is to protect them. That's what you do. You protect them, you protect them, you protect them, and you do it to the best of your ability. You don't want to be that guy. You know, I always said uh, I didn't want to be that guy sitting in front of a Senate subcommittee trying to explain, you know, why the president splattered all over Pennsylvania Avenue or, you know, got to get somebody in his family because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. So, um, yeah, it, you definitely um, uh, have to have that mentality, in my opinion and my experience. Let's talk a little bit about the history. Uh, we'll be coming up on a break and we'll start the conversation now and then discuss it further later. Sure. But, uh Lincoln, as I, I mentioned earlier, irony of irony, signed the Secret Service into existence on the very day of his assassination. Uh, now, mind you, back then it was supposed to be, it was all about the uh, uh, protecting the, 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 the currency. They were, it was an extension of the Treasury Department. Um, but what kind of security did Lincoln have at the Ford Theater and would, John Wilkes Booth have been able to get that close if Lincoln had Secret Service protection. So, yeah, so what Lincoln had that night was he had two people, a police officer and a military officer. The police officer was across the street in the bar. <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> and um, there's just so many jokes there. But, um, and then the, the military officer was distracted. Uh, and he, what you have to understand about Lincoln's assassination was John Wilkes Booth, you know, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not cheering on Booth, but you have to, you know, lay the facts out and so you can learn from him. Booth, uh, John Wilkes Booth set it up very well. He, he had, a uh, day before, a couple of days before, he had walked through the theater, he had, he had been, he was an actor, so he'd been there before. He planned it out very well. He actually manipulated the lock on the door and drilled an extra hole in the door so he could see in there to make sure the president was in there. I mean, he set this up very well, and he got the other people distracted. Um, if Lincoln had, if the two people that were supposed to be there had been there, um, it might have been a little bit different. If if Lincoln had had five people protecting him, it probably would have been a lot different. The modern day Secret Service can protect um, the president from a Lincoln type assassination. But later on in, in the uh, in, our, in your show, I'll be able to tell you a story, you know, where they kind of almost made the same mistake with President Obama. 
Um, so, but I'll, I'll, you know, we'll wait till later when you bring that one up. But, um, you know, and it, it, it all comes down to, you know, how good you are that day and how fatigued they are. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that Secret Services works all their employees into the ground almost. So, um, but yeah, it, it is, it is, um, preventable, but, you know, everybody's got to be on their game. And, and in, in the case of, of Lincoln, you know, I hate to sound like I'm on Booth's side, but he did his planning. And, and, you know, under the circumstances and the time that it was, he was a little high tech about it, you know, when you think about it. So, um, fascinating to read, but, but, you know, and Lincoln, um, I don't know if you saw this in the book, but, but, but Lincoln actually almost got himself killed when he went out to the battlefield during the Civil War. He, um, you know, he used to wear that tall hat. Yes. He's out, he's out on the battlefield uh, uh, during a battle, and uh, a bullet goes through the top of the hat. <laughs> and um, Everybody around him thought somebody took a shot at him. Lincoln was just convinced that it was, uh, it was an accident. Like, you know, nobody actually shot at him. So, huh. but anyway. All right, Gary, we'll take another quick time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about Garfield, McKinley. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about some other attempts. Teddy Roosevelt, of course, Reagan. Uh, much more. Gary Byrne, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Gary Byrne stays with us for the full two hours. Former Secret Service agent and uh, the author of Secrets of the Secret Service, the history and uncertain future of the U.S. Secret Service. We were talking about Lincoln. I wanted to talk about Garfield. He was a guy that was... 16 years later, after Lincoln's assassination, was shot in Washington, D.C. at a train station at point-blank range from behind. Again, no significant security detail. Hard to imagine the president of the United States. I mean, what happened there? Yeah, so one of the things, and I'm glad you you said it like that because it triggered something I I wanted to talk about was one of the things through our history was is that president, and the Congress is guilty of this too, they didn't want presidents to look like kings and kings get protection and you know with these huge armies around them and they didn't want them to look like kings and a lot of the presidents have quite often you know fought security you know didn't want it around them didn't like the way it made them look teddy roosevelt was famous for some of his his writings about you know when he first became president he didn't like the secret service being around them and mckinley was the same way and it bruised their egos it made them look like they weren't tough and that was one of their fears. And a lot of times their staff didn't like the intrusion and, and that, that type of stuff. So it kind of comes down to, like, the old story about how many people have to get killed at an intersection before you put up a stop sign. I guess the injuries started stacking up, and then finally they started getting serious about protection to a certain extent. You mentioned McKinley and how he didn't like security, and he loved glad-handing. And he was right. shot, of course, in, in Buffalo New York at the Pan American Exposition in the Music Pavilion. His own yeah. secretary told him on two separate occasions, something's going to happen here, don't go. And McKinley basically told him, no, we're going to do this. How much ability does the president have to say, no, I'm wading into that crowd or I'm going to get out of the limo? And how much authority does the Secret Service have 
over the president in that regard, to overrule him? It depends on the timeline you're talking about. What you were just discussing, McKinley, at the uh, expo, basically he had to say, so to speak, his protectees that day, those guys were on the ball. And actually at one point, one of the uh, police officers, there was a military honor guard. He brought the military honor guard in and without the president's permission, had them basically post around him in a big circle, like a picket fence. And then as he greeted so many people, people started moving around and getting frustrated. And the lines kind of broke. And then this guy got in. And he got close enough to look like he was pulling out a handkerchief and he pulled out a pistol. Nowadays, it's different. There are rules and laws. I had quite a bit of insight into this when I was protecting President Clinton because I had a very good relationship with a lot of the senior agents. And they greet these modern-day presidents. I mean, they... You know, the briefing they give them to get their attention is, it's scary, <laughs> you know, because they lay it out. But, yeah, the modern-day Secret Service agent has the ability to override the president. But here's what we learned, and i got to tell you, I learned a lot more from my research about this particular thing than I did in my time there was. But when you use that card, when that agent uses that card, and under some circumstances, he pretty much realizes that he's going to be replaced in the next, you know, six months or sooner. If he uses that card and the president doesn't like the way he used it, and I can give you a good example later on where an agent does use it and it saves the president's life that I discovered. But if you use it and you piss them off, they will replace you. You get reassigned. You don't get fired. That depends. At that point, if you're a senior agent, you're probably close to retirement already. So in the case that you're not ready for retirement, yes, they will just reassign you. But most cases, guys have the retirement time. You know, they've been on long enough to retire, and they will retire. But, yeah, in some cases, they'll just uh, transfer them. But it doesn't happen that often. And, you know, it's easy to explain. Even at the time that you do it, the president's upset about it or his staff, later on when there's an after-action discussion, and you explain to them what's going on, because there's a thousand things in this guy's head right now. This agent is making split-second decisions one right after the other. Who's that person? Who's this person? Do I have enough uniform division guys? Are the middle detectives working like You name it, it is happening in his head. And, you know, if he errs on the side of protection and you want to throw him to the wolves, then that's on you. But I've had my issues with the management in the Secret Service, but it's not usually about the way they're doing the job. It's about the way they manage their employees. And these guys are, like I said, they're making decisions, you know, a hundred seconds. And it's all about protecting this one guy's life. We'll come back. Gary will tell us more about inside the Clinton White House as a Secret Service agent. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Gary Byrne, former Secret Service agent, is with us for the full two hours. And his latest book is Secrets of the Secret Service, the History and Uncertain Future of the U.S. Secret Service. And we will talk about the uncertain future in hour two. Right now, we're sort of delving into a little bit of the history of the Secret Service. We talked about Lincoln, the irony that Lincoln signed the Secret Service into existence on the very day he was assassinated. And uh, the Secret Service was not really extended to presidential protection until after McKinley's assassination in 1901. We're going to talk about some of the close calls, but can the president order Secret Service to protect other people, for example, a cabinet secretary or a family member of the vice president? 
Yeah, and they actually have. Let me tell you this real quick. When I joined the Secret Service in 91, they had 12 protection details. 12. When I left in 2003, they had 28. Wow. So, wow. yeah, that gives you an idea. I don't really know what they have now. So back to answering your question was, yeah, so President Clinton's president, and they do a terrorism attack on, anti-terrorism attack on what they think are terrorist training camps in Africa somewhere. So after the attacks and stuff, they use cruise missiles and stuff. So, of course, the, you know, the terrorists are going to do a counterattack. And through a chain of events from two different avenues of information, the Secret Service finds out that there's viable planning going on to attack one of President Clinton's cabinet members in Washington. They brought the information to the Secret Service. The Secret Service brought it to the president. I mean, immediately, like the director walked it right over. And the director, and this is something else that might be fascinating to your listeners, like no matter what's going on, the director of the Secret Service is one of those people that just walk, can walk right into the office. And he, I mean, he'll only do that when it's necessary. All he has to do is walk into the president's secretary's office, smile at her, say hello, and they'll just say, oh, okay, no problem, sir. You know, you need a minute with him, and then interrupt whatever he's doing. And he went right in there and uh, told the president of the threat, told him that they were ready to move and protect these people immediately, that they were already putting the motorcades together, the cars, the human beings, they were ready to do it. All he had to do was say, pardon the pun, but pull the trigger, and they did. And they protected this guy for a year and a half. Wow. So, yeah, it can be done very quickly and on the fly almost, so to speak. And all former presidents, ex-presidents, do they all, by law, require Secret Service protection, or can they sort of opt out and hire their own private security detail? Yes, to both those questions. It's afforded to them by the law, but it's also they can opt out. You actually have to sign a document relieving the Secret Service of the burden, and um, President Nixon did that. President Nixon was so ashamed of the way he left office that he paid for his own security. Now, his security that he hired were former Secret Service agents, but it was a private security company that an agent had started, and he paid for it himself. All modern-day presidents are being protected by the Secret Service. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is I think it's time to change that a little bit. I propose that they protect them for a year and then let these guys give them a stipend from you know to pay for their private security and then let them hire whoever they want to do their security because, you know, it's taking away so much of the Secret Service resources. Um, Exactly. We'll get into that as well in hour two. It seems since 9-11, really, the Secret Service has been called upon to do so many other things that were not necessarily intended originally, but we will get into that. I want to talk about, you know, close calls and attempts that we never hear about. Attempts on Obama. You mentioned that there was kind of a close call that almost mirrored the McKinley assassination. Yeah, a little bit. 2014, President Obama is down in Atlanta, Georgia, at the CDC, Center for Disease Control. And he's there for a good portion of the day. And and, uh, he's going to different parts of the hospital, meeting different people. Well, the Secret Service, this is one of those examples. They're just so overworked. And the the agent doing the advance, you know, was working – 20-hour days before he even did that advance. He was exhausted. Anyway, some mistakes were made. And basically what happened was through a folly of mistakes, they let President Obama three times in one day get on an elevator. And the guy operating the elevator worked for a private security company. The Secret Service had never interviewed him, didn't even know the company was working there. The guy had not been interviewed. He wasn't given a pen, and he was armed. 
not only was he armed, but he had a criminal record. He had had some run-ins with the law, with violence, with a handgun. And three times he got on the elevator with President Obama, and nobody even questioned who he was. And at the end of the day, the third time as he was leaving, the only way they figured out there was something wrong is the guy pulled out his cell phone and started taking pictures of President Obama. And then he started asking questions, and when they realized he was armed, unfortunately they do what they kind of do best, and they do right away when they get caught making a mistake is they try to cover it up. And they tried to hide it, but the story got out. And a couple agents that were very upset of what had happened got the story out. But if that guy had balance in his heart, he could have took a shot at President Obama. And I don't know how he could have done it and not killed him. That distance right. standing right next to him. You know, that's an example of, of you know, the, their management style. They, you know, they, they use, they're using a couple, you know, let's say just for the, the sake of our conversation, they're using, you know, 300 agents or 500 agents on PPD. They need 800. You know, they have a thousand uniform division officers. They need 1500. Um, and they just, they use the smaller number and they work them in overtime until they're exhausted. When someone threatens the president, let's say on social media in a, in a tweet, is it automatic that you're going to get on a, a plane? Somebody in the Secret Service is going to get on a plane and knock on that person's door. Uh, whether in you know you're in Washington and there and the tweet is tracked to San Luis Obispo, California, you're on the plane and you're knocking on that person's door. Is it matter of fact like that? Well, sort of, not, not quite that. But it depends on the threat, and of course, social media is tough. I mean, you know, in theory, you could threaten the president from a cave in, in Alaska, um, but in, in the scenario that you, instead of somebody jumping on the plane. The Secret Service just sends an email or picks up a phone and calls that field office, closest field office, to where they trace that person, and then they do the investigation and interview from there. But pretty much the way you said it. And they try to track down every threat, um, but, you know, and, and they do, but it takes time, and there's lots of them. And, and you know, just, just, I mean, when I was there before social media and, and the Internet was like it is today, I mean, I left in 2003. It was, it was pretty much the way it is today. But, I mean, you, you have to admit to yourself that, like, every year that goes by, we can just transmit stuff so much faster. And, so you know, and and, um, and there's so many platforms that you can, electronic platforms you can threaten the president from. Um, it's hard for them to run it down. They really are kind of meeting their match with it. But they, they do they do um, work on it very, very diligently, and they tr- do try to run down every threat or lead. You have the power to investigate that individual if you, for example, it's not just an automatic, well, you've threatened the president, you're going to jail. If you investigate and you discover that this person has an alcohol problem or mental illness, do you have the power then to basically not exonerate but to shield that person from serious prosecution? Well, you can go either way with it. You have the power to actually, if you feel that there's a viable threat, for instance, somebody makes a threat, you trace it down to somebody in California, you get there, and it's a 70-year-old man in a wheelchair who's angry at the president because he cut his Social Security. You know, there's no weapons in the house. The guy is not going anywhere. You don't have to hammer him. You interview him. And then if he said, you know, if you during the interview, the guy says, I am so embarrassed. I had a couple beers that day. I was angry. I'm in a wheelchair. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I, I'm embarrassed I did it. I'm sorry. I would never, you know, I don't like the guy, but I would never do that. To I couldn't do it, and I would never want to do that. You know, the Secret Service has that judgment call. 
Uh, well, there's some humanity there. That's that's nice to know. We'll pick this up on the next hour. Gary Burns stays with us. Hour two, former Secret Service agent and a remarkable tell-all. Well, not he doesn't tell everything, but he tells an awful lot about the U.S. Secret Service. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.